Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today is a very special episode, as Karen hands the reins over to Josh Carlson, director of the Knowledge Center, to discuss the new book, Raising the Challenging Child, co-written by Karen and Chattuck CEO. Debbie Reed. This is part two of their conversation. Hey listeners, I have some exciting news for you. The book Raising the Challenging Child, which has been co-authored with Debbie Reed and Wendy Lyons Sunshine, is available for pre-order and we want to tell you where to get it. Please go to our website RaisingTheChallengingChild.com for full details on how you can pre-order from your favorite bookseller. I know a lot of you are therapists and parents and really wanting to get the concepts of attachment theory and everything that we talk about in our podcast into practical nuggets for parents that you work with, children that you work with, even your own family. So we think this is just what you're going to be looking for. The book is filled with easy to implement, research-based, family-tested strategies. We hope you'll go out and pre-order today. Well, welcome back to Attachment Theory in Action. I'm your guest host, Josh Carlson, and this is part two of a podcast about the book Raising the Challenging Child. And I have two of the authors here with me today, uh, Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Debbie Reed, our president and CEO here at Chaddock. Thank you again for joining me for part two. Mm-hmm. Happy to uh, be here. Absolutely. So with part one, just to kind of um, recap of, of what we talked about in, in part one of the podcast, we talked a little bit about why we, why the book was written, and, um, but we also looked at the, the structure, the three parts of the book, um, being the first part being uh, to be a leader, um, part two, digging deeper, and then finally, uh, preparing for success. And, and that's really going to be the focus of our uh, time here today is, is those three parts um, and a couple of the lessons from each of those. So we talked uh, at, at the end of our first, po- first podcast, uh, uh, part one of this, we talked a little bit about um, being a leader as a parent. Um, and so we're going to dive into a couple of the lessons that I picked from the book um, and Debbie, I think you even kind of, uh, gave me a nice segue and even mentioned one of the lessons and when you were talking about what it means to be a leader, but, uh, the concept of relationship bank, I know in my own clinical work, I, I, and, and training, um, educators that I talk a lot about the relationship bank and that is such an important lesson and why I picked it for, for today's interview. Um, Debbie, do you, would you talk to us a little bit about what is a relationship bank and why is it so important for parents to be thinking about that in, in their interactions with their children? Well, we use the concept of a relationship bank because I think it's an easy visual for people, a correlation to a bank <clears throat> account, yeah. that you have to make deposits into your account before you can make withdrawals into your account. And it's the same with any relationship. Mm -hmm. In this case, we're specifically talking about a relationship with your child, that you have to make deposits, have positive interactions with your child, um, tell them what's special about them, compliment them on how well they have done something. Each of those kinds of things is a deposit in the relationship bank. 
Because when you're a leader as a parent, you will have to make withdrawals. You will have to set limits. You will have to say no, uh, or not yet, or not now for a child. That's a withdrawal. And if you have made deposits with your child, they feel safe and secured and loved and valued, then you can make a deposit without having really an overdraft on that relationship <laughs> where, where problems arise. And so it is really um, connecting before correcting. Mm. It is making that child feel valued and loved and a recognition of what's special about them um, before you have to say, and as parents, we have to say, no, you can't do that. Here's the limit. And so it's keeping that in balance that can really make the, the challenges of parenting easier. It's diffusing possible um, points of conflict before they ever happen. Yeah. Karen, for you, what's what's important um, with the concept of the relationship bank? What what comes to your mind as um, why that's an important lesson for parents to be thinking about? I think it's an important lesson because um, it's very easy as a busy parent. You're getting through the day and you're saying, I need you to do this. I need you to get this. Please be ready for this. Please do that. Please do this. Please finish that. Please pick this up. And all of those would be withdrawals, right? But that's normal things that we have to do in parenting all day long. It's sort of um, like, you know, sometimes we talk about in, in the, the business literature, the urgent versus the important, <laughs> you know, these are the things right in front of us we have to get done. Um, as opposed to putting deposits in through praise, through, you know, noticing something that your child did really well, through giving your child a choice about something. These are all, all deposits. And I think that because they don't come in the heat of the moment, it's easy to forget and to just keep withdrawing, withdrawing, withdrawing. And it seems that if we could have give, if we could give parents a simple idea that uh, it, you got to make sure you're putting those deposits in before withdrawals, as Debbie said, just like you do in a bank account, to not have an overdraft. And again, you know, going back to the the even the literature in with couples and John Gottman and the number of positive interactions a couple has to have. Um, I believe it's five to one uh, uh, in order to really have the relationship flourish. So that's the other thing. I think sometimes we think about a lot of these things in our adult relationships. Like we know we wanna say kind and appreciative things to our friends, to our partner, but for some reason, sometimes it's like forgotten with our little people. And we just think, you know, we're in charge. We dole out the orders and they follow them, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, a perfect example from my personal life. Just yesterday, I, uh, my son is learning to play the saxophone. And I just, you know, he's only had two lessons. But I said, do you want to show me what you've been learning and how he lit up? He was so excited to share. And that was a moment that I, even myself, I, you know, I've been doing this work forever. And I thought, that's a deposit for him. Like that was so such an important moment to be no, you noticed and you know that I'm doing this and you, you care enough to, to ask to hear about 
Well, Josh, even as exp- even as opposed to, it's time for your saxophone practice. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, you need to practice 30 minutes of your saxophone or, you know, whatever that is. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that's a lovely example of, you know, showing interest and thinking in a deposit mindset rather than a withdrawal. Cause you know, you might later have to make that withdrawal of, yeah, it is time to practice saxophone, but, but you've made this deposit of a positive experience around that as well. Yeah. So, um, another lesson from be a leader is a balance of structure and nurture. And I know that this is a huge one that's so important because we don't want to be um, wishy-washy parents and, and give too much nurture. And, you know, if I just uh, give them enough hugs that everything will be fine. But, uh, but we also don't want to be, you know, make, make the house feel like a dictatorship either. And so it's, it's trying to find that balance in between. Um, Karen, do you want to start us off with this lesson of, why is it important to have a, a balance of structure and nurture? Yes, well, um, and of course, those folks who are listening to this who practice TheraPlay or know about TheraPlay also know structure and nurture are components of the four dimensions of the TheraPlay model, structure, engagement, nurture, and challenge. However, we were using these ideas um, even before we learned TheraPlay, you know, just through understanding uh, in our in our work with children, you know, I would hear, take an example from our residential treatment center, there were certain people that would would run kind of a tight shift and their their shift would go okay and things would feel good and people working with them felt safe, even the, the grown-ups. Um, or we had some other people that didn't have enough structure and things, you know, maybe they were very warm and kind and loving towards the children, but without the structure, things started to get wobbly. Things started to feel a little chaotic. Things started to feel like, or, or staff would start to say, I don't want to work a shift with them. Right. <laughs> you know? Examples like that, you know, and, or it could go the other way, you know, that, oh no, this person's trying to run our cottage like a, a, a army boot camp. In fact, they even used to be in the army, you know, <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's no time for, for laughter and connection and spontaneity and affection and all of that. Uh, so, so that, that wasn't good either. So I think a lot of this, even though I was thinking about it in my own life, I was also seeing it in our work at Chaddock, just in terms of how this worked with groups of children, with very different types of children, with very different types of staff, with very different types of parents, and really seeing that there was so much to be understood about this balance. And the other thing I want to say about it, Josh, is in general, people come to the table a little more one way or the other. And, you know, listeners can probably identify if they like lean towards nurture or if they lean towards structure, they can probably identify that in themselves, just listening. They can probably think about that in uh, families or children that they work with. And so the idea here with this lesson also is you're going to come to the table a certain way. 
and we want to help build the part of you, you know, that you're weaker in. So if you're a more structured person, we want to build on that strength and help you to use that strength effectively, but help you with the nurture piece or vice versa. If mm -hmm. you tend to be, you know, it, it's all warm and fuzzy and it's all good and I really struggle to even give a directive clearly to a child. Okay, so... So we can capitalize on that nurture piece of yours, but we also have to like kind of help you leverage, you know, find within yourself how to have some of that structure. Um, so it's, it's, this lesson is one that will speak to different people in different ways. Yeah, interesting. Um, Debbie, anything that you would like to add to? Well, I, I think one thing that uh, we certainly see in a lot of families, but it can be a challenging dynamic is if one parent is very strong structure and the other parent is very strong nurture. Now you could think those complement each other and certainly <clears throat> they can, but it can also um, create challenges mm. um, and, and almost a power struggle between the parents. You know, when one becomes more structured and the other in response um, if one overdoes the structure, one may overdo uh, the nurture. Yeah. And so I think really looking at, as Karen said, knowing where your balance is, because most of us skew one way or another, um, and, and recognize, you know, sometimes it's, it's easier to add nurture to structure than it is for a really nurturing person to, to try to build more structure mm -hmm. in. And so I think, Again, to give parents some concrete opportunities to know how, what they can do to balance out their natural inclination. And I think the other thing, when we get into challenging situations with you, so maybe you've kind of, okay, move the dial closer to the middle. Mm -hmm. But when you get in a challenging ch situation with your child, oftentimes people will default to whatever uh, side of the continuum their their natural inclination is so mm -hmm. so maybe I get the structure nurture balance right but in a tense situation I'm going to default to nurture yeah um, or the other way around and I think the more that parents can understand their own responses um, the more they can make a conscious choice to even if it's hard if if I'm a strong nurture you know, that first time that I try to infuse more structure into the situation is really hard. Um, and I think we've had a lot of parents who have been surprised at how quickly adding one or the other can really change the dynamics with their child. Yeah. Well, and I imagine, too, that if a couple is reading this together and can read that chapter together, that could really spur some positive conversation about I'm more structure, you're more nurture, how can we come together and having some language be able behind that discussion rather than well you just let Johnny do whatever he wants to mm -hmm. um, and can really help mm -hmm. build build that bridge between that mom, you know those, those two caregivers. Um, <clears throat> so let's let's move on to part two, uh, digging deeper. Uh, Karen, would you share with, with our listeners, what, what does that mean, dig deeper? Yes. Well, you know, as a therapist, of course, this is, you know, my, my section that I love the most out of the three, I guess. I don't know. I love them all. Um, but it's really looking deeper at, at not just what's in front of you. 
Um, and I don't know what lessons you're going to focus on necessarily, Josh, but um, the overall idea is looking beneath the behavior, not just this is the behavior in front of me, and so I need to do whatever I can to extinguish this behavior or get rid of this behavior uh, and, and stop that behavior, but what is underneath the behavior. And the biggest part, I think, about this section that's unique to this book is not only looking at what's beneath the behavior in terms of the child, but what's beneath your behavior mm -hmm. as a parent. What are the driving forces inside of you that are causing you to sometimes react in ways that you think, wow, that's textbook, that's perfect, that's, that's exactly what I wanna do. And at other moments, reacting and responding in ways that yeah, really, you wish you really had a do-over or you're hearing one of your parents come out of your mouth in a way that you promised would never happen or mm -hmm. examples like that. So I think that is a unique feature of this book in terms of not looking only what's under the child's behavior, digging deeper there, but digging deeper into what's behind your own behavior as a parent. And I think that's so important because one, it helps us to better understand our children, but two, it helps us to remember that we can only control ourselves. Sometimes we forget that and we begin to control, try to control the environment, especially when things feel out of control in those challenging moments. And that doesn't work. That mm -hmm. <laughs> We can only control our response um, and the way we, we respond. And so... Um, taking some time within those chat within that part to kind of help the parent go through that process of not just understanding their child better, but also understanding themselves better is such an important aspect. Mm -hmm. Debbie, for you dig deeper. What, what's important for you in that part? Well, I think recognizing that a child's behavior is a symptom mm -hmm. and you can treat the symptom, but that doesn't necessarily address the, the driving, um, what's, what's underneath that in the in driving yeah. core. Uh, and so really starting to recognize, say for example, your child went to a doctor's appointment that was scary, uncomfortable, lots of unknowns. And afterwards you go through the drive-thru in a fast food restaurant and they get the wrong soda and they come unglued. Mm -hmm. That really wasn't about the wrong soda. Right. And if you get after them for, you know, it's not a big deal, you've had that soda before, you're overreacting, A, you're making a huge withdrawal, mm -hmm. and you're missing the opportunity to interact with your child about, I know that doctor appointment was really scary. And, uh, you know, I, I know it's, this wasn't really about the soda, but, but that was very upsetting to you. Mm -hmm then you're getting at the core of the issue. If I got upset about what are you doing overreacting to the soda, mm -hmm. but how often do we get upset of our child for overacting in a situation rather than looking at, wow, that's not how you would usually respond. What else is going on here? Right. So really, one, we're validating the child's experience, the, 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 the emotions that they're feeling, but also we're really teaching the child to take a look at, for themselves deeper inside of this isn't about the soda, it's really about something else. And what an important lesson for children as they become adults to be able to do that. And so we're not, it's not just about helping the child uh, 
behave quote unquote in that moment in that restaurant over the soda but you're also teaching them a lesson that they can take on into adulthood absolutely hmm. uh, and so i think you know it's a, a series of 10 lessons of our parenting where do i need to dig below the surface to really be the most supportive and help my child learn how to respond more effectively in in situations where they've got a lot of emotion about something. Yeah. So um, I think that's kind of a, a, a nice piece to the, the first lesson I was going to ask you about, which was changing up your steps in the dance. Mm -hmm. um, so Debbie, you were just kind of talking about that, you know, instead of focusing on why are you overreacting, you were kind of talking about the, the parent changing their steps and focusing on what was really underneath that behavior. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about that lesson and, and why it's important for parents to do things differently. Every relationship is a dance between two people or in a family system between multiple people. And you, we cannot force a child to act in a different way. Mm -hmm. But if it is a, a dance, if we take a different step, the child is going to take a different step as well. So just in the example I gave, you know, if I didn't react to the behavior on the surface, if I instead said, wow, that was really uncomfortable for you, then the child is able to take a different step and process through what was going on mm -hmm. rather than get defensive based on my actions. And so, I think parents don't recognize how much their own actions will impact how the child acts. So when they do respond dif differently to their child, the child is going to have to respond differently. Yeah. And so it is a way, a, a non-coercive, um, and non-threatening, um, you're not necessarily making withdrawals, but you're seeing the child, which is really a deposit, mm -hmm. um, and responding differently, taking a different step that they're gonna respond to differently. Yeah. Karen, for you, what are, what are your thoughts about um, changing the steps within the dance? I think that, um, you know, it refers to these very entrenched cycles that we get into with our children. You do this, I do that, then you do this, then I do that. And often, um, I mean, we can be at positive cycles too. That's just not usually what uh, the cycles people come to us about. Right. They're usually caught in the child does something and then I react this way and then the child reacts this way. And um, I think one of the most important aspects of this lesson is helping parents understand even if your child's behavior doesn't change because most people come to us and say get my child to change their behavior they're not always coming and saying you know what can i do differently and what i help parents to think about is if you change the child has to change it's like if you're doing the foxtrot and you usually do you know, the tango, you can't keep doing the tango, okay? You can't keep that same dance going if you change your steps 
something has to change in the parent-child relationship. And I think a lot of parents don't realize that and get, it's just like the same as in partner relationships. You know, we come in very focused on what the other needs to do differently. Um, yeah. And really uh, abdicating the power we have in that if we do something different, the, the relationship has to change. And whose behavior do you have the most control over? It's yours. You know, it's yours. Right. Um, you know, children, um, we're, we're in charge of children and we can set rules and we can shape and mold their behavior and try to do these different things. But ultimately, the only behavior you can be pretty certain that, that you can change, maybe not with some help and support, but you can change is your own. And I think parents mm -hmm. miss the power in that often becoming so really focused and frustrated with the child's behavior. Yeah. And, and that was actually my next uh, focus was managing your own reactions. But before I ask you about that, Karen, just something that popped into my mind as you were talking was how empowering it is for a parent when they, when they realize they have control over something. Because so often parents come to us kind of helpless and hopeless because they, they feel like they've lost power. Um, or they, they don't have the power or the ability to, to control the situation or to help their child do things differently. But when we can help them turn inward and understand that it's really about making that adjustment, as Debbie was saying, in, in our own dance steps and, and our own response and our own reactions, that can be really empowering for a parent to, and, and help give some hope that there's something that I can do and that it's, it's not required on some other variable to change or shift to make that come true. I have the ability to do this or not. Yeah. Yes. So, um, with, with dig deeper, managing your own responses and reactions. Um, why, why is that important? Well, I think let's just even just think about Debbie's example about, you know, going through the drive-thru, ordering the soda, child, you know, throwing a fit about the soda, maybe even spilling the soda. Um, I'll give an example from, from my own history. Things being clean and not spilling things in the car or other places was like a really, really high priority. <laughs> overly high to the point that you got shamed. You know, I would be afraid if I spilled something, what might happen? Okay. So if you look at that, something like that happening in the car for me as a parent, in one way, you know, it, it seems kind of benign. I mean, you can always clean up the car, but for me, it's a very charged thing to, to make something like the car messy in terms of, what was said to me, how I felt when things like that happened. So there's, um, you know, all kinds of triggers that we can have from our own history that come up for us or to use, I'm trying to learn to use Bonnie Badnock's uh, phrase, all kinds of things that can be touched and awakened. <laughs> she doesn't like trigger. Um, but the point is that when all of, if some of that gets stirred up in me, 
it's going to be hard for me to maybe respond in one of the ways that Debbie was talking about in, in, a, in an affirming way or looking beneath the behavior or whatever it is. And that's a really just a simple example of how if we don't have a good understanding of our own history, you know, maybe maybe I start yelling at the child. I can't believe you did that. You made such a mess. What's wrong with you? And then afterwards, I'm like, I can't believe I said that. Like. Who talks like that to a child that, that spills the soda in the car? That's horrible. But if you have the context I just gave you, <laughs> yeah. it really helps to understand that. And so much of our behavior is driven by unconscious things like that. So once I can become more aware of that and I can become conscious of that and be like, oh, wait, 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 like Karen, it's okay. It's just a soda, you know, and, and we... I can respond in a very different way. But if none of that is really understood and processed inside me, I could be like totally flying off the handle and being like, whoa, like later on, like, or even, you know, five seconds after it comes out of my mouth, be like, what was that? Like, that wasn't good. Um, so that's part of it. And I think, you know, a lot of parents that we work with, we will teach them certain things um, to do or show them or suggest things. But in the heat of the moment, they can't execute that. And right. that is because other things are being stirred up in them. Um, it's, not, it's not so hard to understand. Maybe when something like that happens after a stressful event, it's related to the stressful event. That seems like, okay, I could read that in the book. and. You know, it doesn't seem to be rocket science, except that why is it I can never consider that when that happens? What's going on for me that I can't think about that lesson? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a huge piece. Well, and I think that um, a part of uh, a part three helps us to hopefully get us to a place with some other strategies that help us think like self-care and, and, and things like that. So Debbie, tell us a little bit about part three of the, of the book, uh, preparing for success. Well, again, it is where, where we've looked at the parent, we've looked <clears throat> at the child and then what are strategies as a unit that you can incorporate, um, that are really going to set the stage to be successful, you know, just, you know, knowing these things um, from an academic standpoint doesn't mean that they're all going to translate into actions. Yeah. Uh, and so what kinds of things can we do as parents proactively to strengthen that relationship? And, you know, we talk a lot about being able to, to draw on the, the wisest part of your brain, the mm -hmm. thinking part of your brain, that's easier in stressful moments if you have taken care of yourself, um, prepared for such situations, because they're going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, we, to assume that you're going to take a cross-country trip with your family and you aren't going to have moments of stress and challenge mm -hmm. is not realistic. Right. So, you know, whether it's packing the snacks ahead of time and 
making sure that everyone's staying hydrated and um, you know and their blood sugar is is at a good point or whether it is taking care of yourself so that you can bring your best to your child a whole host of things that don't just happen without us planning and so preparing for success is really that proactive steps that a parent can take that really makes everything work better yeah so Karen, one of the lessons is, uh, and I love this, feeding, watering the children every two hours. Uh, why, why is that important? What about uh, food and water is important for our kids and I'm also assuming important for us? Yeah, so you know, part of it is some of what Debbie mentioned in terms of stable blood sugar and and not being thirsty and hungry. And but the reason that which again, what wait a minute, like is that rocket science? But what we noticed a lot of times with the kids that we were working with at Chadock, they would be out on the basketball court maybe so, several hours, you know, on the weekend or something. Like we, we try to have a lot of physical activity for our kids. And, you know, maybe staff members and some mem people were, were getting a drink and, and we, we maybe at first didn't notice that one or two children were not getting a drink uh, as often as the others. Or certain children weren't in touch with even being thirsty and really needed help with that, needed prompting with that. And, you know, in our in-home intensive program, this comes up a lot where we, parents will say, ask the child if they're hungry, child says they're not hungry. Well, if we put a snack and some water in front of them, they drink it and eat it. So a lot of the times, you know, either in the busyness, we're not noticing that people aren't getting enough water and food ourselves or our children, or sometimes, you know, we're asking a child and a child, you know, busy playing or whatever. No, 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 I'm fine. Um, that could be an average child um, or a child with a significant history of neglect who's learned to just really suppress any signs or needs of hunger and thirst because that's how they survived. So there's, you know, different levels of it. But of why it could be happening. But the point is the same thing is happening in your body, you know, blood sugar dropping and, and um, not feeling as good due to lack of hydration. And that affects behavior. I think mm -hmm. sometimes we don't realize just, you know, think of yourself when you're hangry, you know, the, the term that we like to use when, when you're getting, um, when you're getting uh, hungry and so hungry that it makes you angry. So, you know, then uh, as we learned about uh, TBRI, trust-based relational intervention, you know, that some of that was reinforced in terms of what we were seeing. And then I believe it, uh, well, I don't believe, I know it was one of our staff members, Marsha Ryan said, feed and water the children every two hours. <laughs> and it just really stuck. I mean, it was cute and it was funny and it just, you know, that that's one of these things about these lessons too, that there there has to be something very simple to, to make it kind of stick in your brain to remember. And that was one of those where it just really stuck that we need to proactively be thinking about those needs. You know, there's a reason grocery stores now offer cheese sticks or cookies or other things <laughs> to kids because they have fewer meltdowns in right. the grocery store 
because the, the kids are fed and watered. You know, they come home from their mom picks them up from school or daycare. I got to run by the grocery store. Everybody's tired and hungry. And, you know, it's amazing what giving a child a snack or a bottle of water can do to ward off the meltdowns that inevitably happen at the most inopportune times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, even grocery stores are using these concepts. Yeah. Too. yeah. Well, and, and so I guess, Debbie, it's not just about, though, giving them any snack. There's, there's some things that we can consider, whether it's, you know, sensory issues. Is it something that's salty or sweet or is it crunchy or is it, you know, like a, a sucker that you would suck on? Uh, talk a little bit about, you know, it's, it, you know it's, it's more than just giving them a bag of Cheetos. Absolutely. You know, I mean, certainly we, we want some things that give, give the child some protein, um, you know, really a, a well-balanced, and that sounds hard, but it's really not these days. You know, you can get cheese sticks. Um, they've got the yogurt um, tubes yeah. that, that kids love to, to eat. Um, there are lots of ways that you can, you know, maybe it's celery with peanut butter in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are more and more prepackaged things, if, if that's what you need, or simple things that the parent can, fruit, um, you know, fruit can be very transportable um, for, for the families. Also know your own child's preferences. Mm. Some like chewy, crunchy, salty. Uh, and so make sure that, that you give your child, you know, certainly try a a balance of different things, but, but different child children will respond to different kinds of snacks. And so know your child and, and provide that, um, that's, that's going to be most fulfilling for them. Yeah. So not only do we need to feed more of the children, but we also need to take care of ourselves. And I know, uh, having been here at Chaddock for as many years as I have been, I know that you're a very big proponent of self-care and, and taking care of yourself and your family. And, and one of the great uh, tones within our agency culture is that. What does that look like, though, as a parent? When you are busy, you're picking up the kids from the grocery store and and rushing off to the or picking them up from school and rushing to the grocery store. What's what's a nugget or or something that you would take away or that you want our listeners to think about when it comes to self care as a parent? You know, I think the biggest thing is it looks different for different people. Mm. And mommy guilt is a real thing. I'm sure daddy guilt is too, but I have experience yeah. with, with my, you know, people will make judgments on what you should do or shouldn't do as a parent. And someone else may value judge what is um, restorative for you mm. may not look that way for some, or it may look as if you're shirking your responsibilities. Yeah you know individually what is um, fuels you and helps you bring your best to it. And so um, unlike Karen, I'm not a runner, but maybe running or, um, you know, for some people, maybe it's reading a book, um, doing various things that feed you and not to apologize and maybe reframe it in your mind is, you know, it's not taking time for me, although you should never apologize for taking time for yourself. It is allowing you to bring your best self to your child. 
Um, and so when I take care of myself, I can be the best for my child. And that's what you want is the best for your child. And so know yourself, know what's, what's going to allow you to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I see that that's our time for today. And I think that, um, uh, this has just been an incredible discussion about, um, this book and, and the three parts about, you know, understanding ourselves, understanding our kids, um, our children, and then how, how do we bring it all together and how do we do things that are going to be proactive to, to support ourselves, to support our kids, to support our families. So, um, Karen, Debbie, thank you for, for joining me today for, for part two of this. Um, thank you again for our listeners to listening to Attachment Theory in Action. And um, we hope you have a wonderful day. And don't forget to do something today for self-care. Hey, listeners, I have some exciting news for you. The book Raising the Challenging Child, which has been co-authored with Debbie Reed and Wendy Lyons Sunshine, is available for pre-order, and we want to tell you where to get it. Please go to our website, RaisingTheChallengingChild.com, for full details on how you can pre-order from your favorite bookseller. I know a lot of you are therapists and parents and really wanting to get the concepts of attachment theory and everything that we talk about in our podcast into practical nuggets for parents that you work with, children that you work with, even your own family. So we think this is just what you're going to be looking for. The book is filled with easy-to-implement, research-based, family-tested strategies. We hope you'll go out and pre-order today. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.